Ladies and gentlemen, these are not assertions. These are facts corroborated by many sources, some of them sources of the intelligence services of other countries. The gravity of this moment is matched by the gravity of the threat that Iraq's weapons of mass destruction pose to the world. One of the most worrisome things that emerges from the thick intelligence file we have on Iraq's biological weapons is the existence of mobile production facilities used to make biological agents. Let me take you inside that intelligence file and share with you what we know from eyewitness accounts. We have first-hand descriptions of biological weapons factories on wheels and on rails. That was then Secretary of State Colin Powell on February 5th, 2003, making the case to the United Nations Security Council that Iraq under Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and ties to Al-Qaeda. It was a salesman's pitch for a U.S. military invasion that came a little more than a month later. As has long been known, virtually everything Powell had to say that day was wrong based on faulty intelligence that had been massaged and manipulated in order to fit the Bush White House's narrative that Saddam had to go. Much of this became quickly clear after American troops occupied Iraq and could find none of the WMD that Powell told the world was there in abundance. But now veteran journalist Robert Draper has written a new book to start a war that digs deeply into the Iraq war fiasco and reveals through new documents and interviews just how far the Bush administration had gone to stretch the truth. We'll discuss Draper's findings and what they mean for today on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, we lived through this experience of the uh, Iraq War and the Bush administration's salesmanship to uh, make the case that the war was needed. And, you know, we all went through a process of accepting at first some of what they were saying, starting our own reporting, trying to uh, verify it. We all had doubts. But when you see it all together, as Draper has done in this book, it is pretty staggering just how colossally wrong the U.S. government was not that long ago. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you read through Draper's book, which is exhaustively researched and really well done. And, you know, you think, oh, my God, like this is this such a different era, you know, like uh, I've sort of forgotten so much of it and yet remembered how it consumed us for so long. And, you know, for a lot of journalists in Washington, you know, that and 9-11 were sort of formative experiences. But it, you know, in a, in, a, in a way, as you're reading the book and thinking about it, you realize that it is really part of a continuum that there were the seeds of a lot of the craziness in Washington that we are covering now were planted back then. Uh, this kind of assault on the truth and conspiracy theories and distrust um, in, in experts. A lot of the things that led to you know us getting into uh, that disastrous war are uh, evident in the way Washington and, and the current president uh, behaves now, although to a much greater extreme. Now, I will say that as, you know, sort of appalling as uh, Washington is right now in so many ways, the one thing is we have not gotten into wars like the Iraq war in which, you know, 4,500 American service members were killed. So that's true. And, and I think, you know, you'll hear 
I expect Trump making that point as we get closer to Election Day, especially since he's running against the candidate, Joe Biden, who did, in fact, vote for the Iraq war, just as Hillary Clinton did, Trump's opponent in 2016. But I just want to push back on something you said there when you talked about the experts, because what's important to remember here is so many of the experts, not all, but many of the foreign policy mandarins did support the war in Iraq yeah, and no, did that, buy into the case th- that, uh, is, that Powell that, was making at the United Nations. Yeah, that is true. I actually had in mind experts who were far uh, lower down on the totem pole, which was the inspectors in Iraq who were saying there are no weapons of mass destruction here, and they were, and they were dismissed. And, you know, I think Part of what comes out of Draper's book is that exactly to your point is that, you know, uh, experts often can't be trusted. And that's part of the reason people don't trust experts right now because of what happened in Iraq. And all you have to do is go back a couple of generations before that and remember the best and the brightest and how all of those experts, the Harvard boys that uh, Jack Kennedy had in the White House, led us down that primrose path into Vietnam that, you know, the previous biggest foreign policy disaster in American history before Iraq. Yeah, well, I think they both uh, rank up there. Uh, Vietnam, of course, uh, cost the lives of more than 50,000 American troops. So I think I'd still have to put that as number one. But uh, Iraq war uh, uh, definitely is, is, is on the short list of American foreign policy disasters. And we should talk to our own expert today on this subject, Robert Draper. Let's bring him in and get right to it. We now have with us Robert Draper, author of the new book, To Start a War, How the Bush Administration Took America into Iraq. Robert, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me on. So uh, your book uh, was quite the trip down memory lane, uh, something we all lived many years ago. Some of us wrote quite a bit about over time. Why write a book about the Bush administration's decision to invade Iraq now? Sure. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, even leaving aside that any foreign policy decision is consequential and as consequentially disastrous as the Iraq war was, deserves, you know, ongoing inspection. Uh, Even leaving that aside, at the time that I decided to do this, uh, we were half a year into Trump's presidency. And in asking the question, how did this happen? How did we get to, you know, electing a reality TV star with zero government experience? I mean, I think that, that a lot of it goes back to the to the belief that um, expertise failed us, that experience failed us, and and that, um, after all, that is basically what Trump's um, primary campaign was, you know, looking at Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and saying, not only in general have you do you guys have nothing to show for your experience, but to the extent that you have anything to show for your experience, I'm maybe sounding more articulate than the candidate was back then, but to the extent that, that, uh, that you do have something to show for it, you have a war to show for it. And uh, so, you know, there was that. But I also think that, that um, another aspect to it was that I, I feel like that we have seen now a natural or, or an unnatural progression of a war on truth that Trump represents the apogee of, but that it has its roots in a, an administration that, to put it lightly, was not earnestly pursuing the truth. I do think you can draw a, a, a real distinction, a meaningful distinction between ignoring the truth and mischaracterizing the truth and just completely making up what Kellyanne Conway memorably called alternative facts. But so I think that, you know, all all of that to me has, um, I think that Trump's presidency uh, was enabled by the Iraq war, by the Bush administration. The other thing too is that, you know, and you can appreciate this, I mean, Mike, that, that when you and David published Hubris in 2006, I believe, and for that matter, when I published my book on Bush, Dead Certain, in 2007, um, his numbers were descending and there was no appetite for a lot of people to read about this stuff anymore, certainly by the time my book came out. And, and uh, uh, after, you know, Woodward's book in 2004, people, I think a lot of people just said, we've had enough. And, and there's a whole generation of people who've grown up with the belief that um, the government isn't on the level, that Iraq war was a disaster, but they know nothing about it. 
Then, and, and so this yeah. book intends to be, you know, and, and with the benefit, of course, of time, with talking to people who you guys, for all the incredible reporting you did, weren't able to get to because they were still inside the CIA, for example. My book is the beneficiary of the passage yeah. of time in that regard. So, Robert, first of all, I think it's fascinating you talk about that evolution in terms of kind of undermining the truth from, from the Bush administration to the Trump administration. I think we should get into that some more. But I want to just step back for a second and, you know, I guess the overarching question that you examine in this book is why did Bush do it? Why did he choose to go to a war that in the end, you know, is you know one of the most disastrous foreign policy decisions in, in American history? And the answer that you provide in this book turns out to be a little more subtle than sort of the conventional wisdom. So talk about that a little bit, what you ultimately kind of concluded about that. Sure. Thanks, Dan. I mean, for, for starters, you know, this was a question I could not lay a glove on when I was spending time with Bush in 2006 and 2007, because Bush was just basically saying, well, you know, God, I mean, the world's better off without Saddam, terrible guy, you know, awful to his people, possessed weapons. At that point in 2006, he still actually believed Saddam had weapons. What I came to realize in the course of doing this research was that I basically rejected the binary of either Bush came into office intending to do this all along or um, Bush decided at the very last minute, which is, by the way, what he basically says in his book. What to me became progressively clear over time was that Bush felt he had no choice in the matter. But it's interesting. So first of all, let's establish that he couldn't stand Saddam, you know, for all of familial and other reasons. Then 9-11 happens. Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz gets Iraq on, on Bush's radar four days after 9-11. I mean, it, there had been talk about it, but but Wolfowitz makes the case at Camp David. And thereafter, it's it's there, and he's inclined to go in. But what happens is that he believes he has no choice in the matter because he basically the only apparatus that was built for Bush was a war apparatus. It was the NSC establishing these meetings to talk about how to do the war, what comes after the war. No discussion whatsoever about whether or not they should do it. Uh, you've got the CIA by the summer of 2002, really earlier than that, but especially in the summer of 2002, moving assets and case officers, uh, having them talk to their foreign liaison, saying, let's let's ramp up our sourcing on this. We need you to be helpful to us because it's going to happen. And you have, of course, Rumsfeld, you know, with him and Tommy Franks with this war plan that they first drafted for him in December of 2001. So when he's looking around wondering what the alternatives are, there's no real alternative. And one of the reasons for that, and this is one of these infuriating aspects is that basically everyone around Bush was not willing to test his insistence that his mind was not made up. They all figured his mind was made up. And so, you know, like Donald Rumsfeld by September of 2002 and Condi Rice by December of 2002 had incontrovertible evidence that the WMD intel was deeply flawed. But they figured it didn't matter at that point because Bush was pretty much, you know, had a war machine going and all they would do is get on his bad side. So they never actually had a discussion with him on the topic. Could that discussion have made a difference? It's hard to say. We'll never know because no one bothered. So, um, Robert, we started out uh, this podcast before you came on just playing uh, excerpts from uh, the speech that Colin Powell gave to the United Nations Security Council in February 2003, just laying out the case with great certainty. Ladies and gentlemen, these are not assertions. These are facts. They've been tested. They've been vetted. And uh, as you make clear in the book, this is still something that torments Powell to this day that he was maneuvered into being the front man to give the speech to make the case to the American people and that he went to enormous lengths at the time to make sure that what he was saying was backed up by solid intelligence and yet he got everything wrong everything that he said in that speech about WMD and ties to Al-Qaeda and everything else for the case. How did he and the intelligence community get it so wrong? Sure. We'll start with the fact that, as Colin Powell said to me, when in January of 2003, Butch approached him and said, Colin, I think I have to do this. Are you with me? I, I, I want you with me. It certainly could have been a point at which Powell was said what, which actually he believed at the time, which is this is a bad idea. If he said I, I'm not with you, then he 
might have resigned and it would have created a domino effect that might have forestalled the invasion. But as he said to me, he said, you know, what, what am I going to do? He's president of the United States. Besides, Powell went on to say to me, Look, they call me the reluctant warrior, but I know how to do war. So, you know, if you're going to go to war, you might want the reluctant warrior on your side. And of course, the tragic irony is Bush didn't ask him how to do a war. He asked him how to sell the war. So when he came to, to Powell and said, you know, I want you basically to, to sell the war, there's now like a lot of finger pointing going on as to who's at fault here. But um, Powell didn't want a namby-pamby case. He wanted a persuasive case. And so he wanted evidence. He didn't want assessments. And now the CIA is put in a jam because all they've got are assessments. So the analysts know that these are only assessments, and now they're being having to they're being forced into a position where they're basically saying this is hard evidence. Tennant has been George Tennant, the the director of the CIA, has throughout this time been put in a pretty impossible situation where he he does not want. Bush to just rely on phony intel. And there was a lot of that going around. He wanted to rely on the best stuff that was around, and he believed that was the CIA. So he, for the sake of the president, for the sake of his own institution, he wants to be helpful. But but when you're helpful and you're, and you're becoming a co-salesman to a case, you have just crossed a red line. So here's what happens. So in a few days, and, and of course, they only have a few days, this decision is made kind of on the fly and they want to get this going because if the war is going to happen, it needs to be before summertime heat. Uh, and so now they only have a few days to prepare this speech and they prepare it in CIA headquarters where Powell says, OK, give me all the evidence and tenant wanting to be helpful brings in all these analysts and brings in, you know, the best stuff they have. Well, the best stuff they have is not so great. The, the most the most powerful thing is that there is this seeming evidence that um, there are these mobile biological labs, labs on wheels, which is why they never supposedly been able to find these, um, you know, evidence of a, of a biological facility, you know, churning out BWs because it's on wheels escaping detection. And that there's some dude named Curveball, an Iraqi defector who was a chemical engineer defected to Iraq and has given them this information. And it looks really, really great. But what Powell doesn't know is that the CIA has never talked to Curveball and that Curveball has a flaky source. And then, in fact, the, the German intelligence agency cut ties with them a couple of days before 9-11. But after 9-11, as you know, they, the frenzied search for the next threat becomes, they, um, the biological specialists in the CIA start reassessing all that stuff and saying, wow, this stuff is really, really great. Powell knows none of this. He has no idea that there is a lot of conflict there on the matter of chemical weapons. The reason that, that it seemed so sure that the chemical specialists believed that Saddam had chemical supply was, this is maddeningly circular. Well, we've already established he has biological because of the curveball thing. If he's biological, it stands to reason they'd have chemical too. He had it at one time. At one time, why would he have stopped that but kept the biological program going? And then they began to see these trucks moving out of these chemical facilities, which were making chemicals. Everyone knew that. The question is what kinds of chemicals and, and, and to what end. They see these trucks moving in and out, and they think, aha, these are trucks trying to dispose of this stuff, or they're decontaminating the facility. Of course, the innocuous explanation was, no, they're just like water trucks watering down the floors every day, as one does its facilities. I had no idea the, the assessment that was made of these chemical facilities had a more innocuous explanation. And then finally, on nuclear, Powell was aware that there was some debate about whether or not these seized aluminum tubes could have been used for rocket launchers or could be used for nuclear centrifuges. His own um, State Department intelligence agency, known as INR, had assessed the innocuous, the innocuous version. They were for rocket launchers. But he went with the CIA, so defying his own experts in that sense. But he was persuaded, and the CIA deputy director was there with an aluminum tube rolling across the table. So basically, in short, Powell was surrounded by people who provided the answers that sounded the most ironclad, but no one in that room was a person who could have said, actually, sir, you might want to know there's a lot of doubt on this subject. So he spoke in the most unequivocating manner possible about stuff for which there was plenty of reason for equivocation. Mm -hmm. 
Robert, you've got so many you know fascinating characters in the book, but the one I want to ask you about is the one that you start the book with, which you who you alluded to a little while ago, and that's Paul Wolfowitz. And uh, of course, Isakoff and I got to know him pretty well during that time. He is a complicated character, contradictory, compelling in some ways, <laughs> deeply flawed in others. Tell us about him. And you know, we kind of everyone used to refer to him as the architect of the Iraq War, which I think you say is is overstated. But at the end of the day, is Paul Wolfowitz a kind of a historical footnote, or was he a driver of the decision to go to war in Iraq? Well, so, yeah, that's a great question, because, you know, people tend to think of this neoconservative cabal that made the war happen. I don't I don't use the word neoconservative in my book because I, I don't think it's terribly helpful, is a bit intellectually lazy and tends to group people together who are distinct um, in terms of their motivations. Wolfowitz was not the kind of guy who believed we need to project force all over the world. That was sort of Cheney's thing. Fife kind of believed that too, the undersecretary of policy in the in the Pentagon. Wolfowitz was more this this um, idealistic ideologue who believed believe that democratization of spread throughout the Middle East would have this, you know, wonderful flowering effect that would help Israel, but uh, it, would, it would help yeah. everyone there. And it's, and, and it, so was he the architect? No, but he's, but, but he's also not a footnote. And why? Because as I alluded to before, he's the guy who got Iraq on the map when it seemed to many of us on the outside, like a total change of subject. But he was the one who, who said, no, Saddam is Mr. Terrorism. Actually, within hours of 9-11, right, doesn't he task a DIA officer to uh, to look into this? Yeah, that's a, my book discloses for the first time that late in the evening of 9-11, he sent, and, and Wolfowitz at this time has already actually seen the manifest of the hijackers. He knows these are like principally Saudi, and there's certainly no Iraqis in the bunch, and yet it's Wolfowitz who sends out a tasking to the DIA saying, basically, get me everything you've got on Iraq's ties to terror groups. And so four days later, when he there at Camp David with all of the kind of war council, he's the one who says Saddam was responsible for this. And, and even though then it creates a ruckus and a big argument, he gets an audience with Bush later and talks to him more about it. And so now he plants into Bush's mind the notion that this actually is relevant to the subject of who attacked us. And so he is far more than a footnote. Let me just ask one very quick follow-up uh, on Wolfowitz, uh, because I think it goes to a larger theme here that we were talking about before. So Wolfowitz also had this this sort of darker conspiratorial side to him. And, you know, kind of ironic since he's the son of a mathematician, he studied math himself, but he was very close to a, uh, a Harvard professor named Laurie Milroy. And it's a golf You stole I, my question. Oh, That's sorry, man. That's exactly uh, where uh, I wanted but, to go next. Okay, so you, that, you go ahead and ask the question. Now right, that I've, I've set it up for you, She's one of my Mike. favorite characters. Uh, because <laughs> as, you, uh, as you document, Wolfowitz was heavily influenced by this woman, Laurie Milroy, who really was a conspiracy theorist, who had concluded that Saddam Hussein was behind every act of terrorism in the world, including the Oklahoma City bombing. <laughs> and, you know, she started with the World Trade Center bombing in 1993 and had all this minutia about various people who were involved in that, making phone calls to Iraq. The amazing thing, which Clyde and I learned at the time when we went and interviewed Wolfowitz at the Pentagon, is Wolfowitz was obsessed with this stuff. I mean, he was able to pick the most, you know, minute minutia from Moroy's book and cite it chapter and verse. He had dog-eared copies of her book and it was all garbage. Well, so I, I, I talk about in, in that first chapter of the book how this lonely crusader before 9-11, Wolfowitz, was going around the Pentagon, like showing this book to people saying, what do you think? You know, what do you think of Laurie Milroy's book? And they're like, oh, my God, this is science fiction. You know, it's, it, and uh, for your listeners, I mean, Laurie Milroy, who had been respected up to a point, um, somehow went on this bender that Saddam was responsible for every heinous terror act, as you mentioned, including most 
most saliently the first World Trade Center attempted bombing in 1993. That's the really important one. And so uh, when the FBI started investigating this, Milroy is calling the FBI saying, you know, you've got the wrong man. You need to be getting, you know, it's a Saddam guy that, that you need to be going after. And, you know, you have to remember, like, the FBI, they're searching for who was behind this plot. It's not their job to, like, say, let's not consider Iraq. They, they were taking in all comers. If it was Iraq, sure, why not? You know, and, and pre-9-11, all of these counterterrorists who are looking around at bin Laden and his contacts and how to get him, if he'd been associated with Saddam, they would have, you know, they would have pursued that lead for all his worth. There's a reason why they didn't. It didn't exist. And so um, so the Milroy thing exposes something about Wolfowitz that despite his genius and despite his, you know, idealistic heart, he had a real tendency towards these crazy theories. And he would go around to people and saying, what, like to tenant, you know, what are these, these 64 phone calls that this 1993 World Trade Center conspiracist placed to Iraq during this time? Well, I talked to the FBI about that and they said, yeah, he made 63 calls. He made like 5,000 calls and they were all over the Middle East. This was him and his friends sharing the same cell phone. They're bored. I don't know. Maybe they were about plots. Maybe they were talking about TV. But, but you know, the FBI did their best to track all of this down and, and yet it, it remained alive in Wolfowitz's you know, heart and he, and he never repudiated it. Never. To this day, really hasn't repudiated it. Now, uh, Laurie Milroy, of course, had once co-authored a book with Judy Miller then of the New York Times, and, you know, she played a key role in sort of laying the groundwork for the case uh, that was ultimately made by the Bush administration. Talk a little about her role, how influential she was, and I want you to get also to another story that had a huge impact, and that's the aluminum tubes story, which you alluded to before, which broke in the New York Times, and you have some new reporting on how that came about. Yeah. So, I mean, to Judy Miller, I mean, what I'll say about her motivations in all this is that she was extremely, she's a extremely capable journalist and extremely competitive journalist. You know, she lived for scoops and, and uh, as, as so many of us do, and, you know, she'd won one, one Pulitzer already. And I think was, you know, anxious like many journalists are to get yet another. After 9-11, there was a great hunger in the New York Times to do a couple of things. First of all, uh, not to be scooped by Bob Woodward. Hal Raines was sort of obsessed with with uh, um, not letting Woodward, you know, um, steal all this territory. But also on a civic level, look, you know, this is, I mean, the epicenter of the attacks was New York. And a lot of the people who worked at the Times were very, um, you know, they, they knew people who'd been hurt. And there was, there was a real civic kind of um, compulsion to learn to do whatever they could to thwart the second attack. And then a third you know, component is that uh, some of the Times reporters, as well as reporters elsewhere, had a back history with um, uh, with Saddam Hussein, you know, and, and what they knew about him, they didn't like, you know, they, they, uh, whether it was, you know, Halabja and the chemical gassing of, of um, you know, innocent people or the way his regime was operating vis-a-vis -vis sanctions and, and uh, his supposed denial and deception program, they, they weren't going to cut him any breaks. And so a lot of them were leaning into this. Miller, not the only one. And by the way, Miller was not the only one to, to make mistakes at the Times from The New York Times. But certainly the biggest whopper of the mistakes was the aluminum tube story. And Judy Miller co-wrote that with Michael Gordon. And I believe it was Gordon who got the initial tip about this. And it's not real clear to me where it came from. But I do know that the NSC, Steve Hadley, was a confirming source for them. And uh, basically it was this, again, this notion I had alluded to earlier that these aluminum tubes that had been seized by the Jordanian that were intended for the Iraq military were going to be used for uh, nuclear centrifuges. And uh, this story came out at around a time when Hal Raines was commissioning Judy Miller go out and do a big WMD story to her and Mike Gordon. And, and that was right on the heels of Cheney's infamous August 26, 2002 speech before the VFW in Nashville saying, simply stated, there can be no doubt that Saddam has weapons. So Hal Raines is basically saying, what? Do we know if this is true? Go, go do a weapons story. And so this is the scoop that they came up with. And what Miller was unaware of and, and actually, I think that what the NSC was unaware of was that there was a real debate within the intelligence community, and not just between the State Department's intelligence group, INR, which believed these tubes were for uh, rocket launchers between them and the CIA, 
but also within the CIA themselves, uh, the counterproliferation division analysts didn't believe that this was so. Now, their senior managers kind of pushed that down because the senior managers by this point in time, August, September 2002, believed we were going to war anyway. And from a bureaucratic standpoint, didn't want to get on the bad side of the argument. They wanted to be the helpful ones. They wanted to be the stars. They were always competing with WinPAC, which was the other weapons-related um, sub-agency within the CIA. All this Imagine the bureaucratic stuff. Well, that was the story that gave us the uh, famous quote, we can't wait for the uh, smoking gun in the form of a mushroom cloud. And, uh, you know, what's fascinating about your book is when you learn that it was Hadley and Robert Joseph, who was the, uh, the WMD guy at the NSC, who were briefing Miller and Gordon about this, um, presumably under Rice's, Condoleezza Rice's instructions, it all makes sense how this really was something fed by the political appointees at the White House who wanted to make the case and planted in the country's leading newspaper. Right. And well, and, and so uh, the other piece to this, Mike, as, as you know, and as the book lays out, was that ironically, the, uh, so you said this was a part of a sales job. This was the White House pushing out the case for war now. now. How do we know that? Because the New York Times did that story. So there's Elizabeth Bumiller writing this big story about the White House Iraq group, a bunch of communications specialists in the White House who are now planning a marketing strategy for this. And infamously, she gets that great quote from then Chief of Staff Andy Card saying, well, we're, we're doing it now because you don't market new products in, in August. Everybody knows that. So there, there's the, the New York Times, ironically, with, with the story saying what should be a warning to all reporters, careful, they are pushing out stuff as a part of a marketing strategy. And yet they actually kind of buried that story. They gave the big real estate to the marketed story, right? The story relating to aluminum tubes. And it actually includes in that story, a quote of, we don't want, you know, we don't want the proof ultimately to come in the form of a mushroom cloud that Condi Rice ends up saying on the Sunday talk shows, the very day that the story appears. So, Robert, throughout the book, you're unsparing in your criticism for a lot of the people around Bush in this march to war. But you, for the most part, don't impugn their motives. And so I want to ask you about some of them, in particular, Dick Cheney. And then maybe we can talk about Rumsfeld. But, you know, Cheney, one thing I remember, and we used to talk about this in the office and did some reporting on it, was that he seemed to have this genuine fear after 9-11 that, you know, that we were going to be victims of germ warfare, biological attacks. He seemed really fearful of that. But what what were what were his motivations? Yeah. So it's, no, no, I, I actually found Cheney up until a point, and I will describe this point to you in just a second, um, uh, was among the more intellectually honest people, you know, in the Bush administration when it came to the subject of Saddam. He thought he couldn't stand Saddam. He, he believed it was the right policy at the time, all the way until at least the year 2000, to have left Saddam in power, or at least not push, use military force to push him out of power after the first Gulf War. He had hoped that the Iraqis themselves would finish the job. By 2001, he's kind of wishing that, that uh, he's kind of second guessing that policy. But at that point, he's working for a president who, despite his own personal animus for Saddam, has a domestic agenda to pursue. He wants to do tax cuts. He wants to do no child left behind. And he doesn't want to be like spending his first term hugging war widows. And 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 Cheney respects that. Then 9-11 happens. And, and a couple things happen. And Dan, you will you allude to one of them. And that's that, uh, you know, there is a true fear on the part of Cheney that, that a next wave will come and it will be worse than the first. Uh, it could come with biological weapons and it truly could lead to just, you know, this uh, almost a genocidal effect. But a corollary to that is that Cheney's believed this is bound to happen. And why is it bound to happen? Because we have always told the rest of the world when they provoke us that we're going to do something and we never do. We didn't do it after the 1998 um, embassy attacks in Africa. We didn't do it earlier in Mogadishu. We didn't, you know, we, we're, we're always feigning a projection of force and then we never really follow through. And until we do literally project that force, they'll know they can continue to take advantage of us. But then, okay, so, but then on August the 26th, 2002, he says, simply stated, there can be no doubt that um, Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. That's just crap. And he can say that he believed that, but the intelligence community had not come to that conclusion at all. They, they had 
assessments, but no one saying, none of them could say there can be no doubt. I mean, Cheney was doing that because his mind was made up on the subject. He wanted to cut through all the clutter, but it was a deeply dishonest thing to say. I want to ask you about a number of, uh, of people who figure in the book. One is George Tenet, who was originally Bill Clinton's CIA director and then stayed on under Bush. He had people within his own agency who were raising red flags, not as loudly and as forcefully as they should have, but they did. Tenet was aware of that, pushed back at times, particularly on the uh, Saddam al-Qaeda connection, but when it came down to it, in particular, preparing for Powell's speech, he offers up the intelligence that makes its way into Powell's speech about a certain Al-Qaeda character who had allegedly said that Saddam was training Al-Qaeda in chemical and biological weapons. Now, this Al-Qaeda character was somebody named Ibn Sheikh Al-Libi, who we learned later had been tortured by the Egyptians, coughed up this intelligence while he was uh, being roughed up and then later recanted it. And yet it was Tenet. It was Tenet who slipped that in to Powell's speech. How is it that Tenet could do that, given what his own agency experts were telling him? about the lack of any connections between al-Qaeda and Iraq. All right. Well, it's, I mean, there had been debate within the agency about the al-Libi um, interrogation. So even before al-Libi uh, formally recanted in 2004, saying that it, he had been tortured by the Egyptians and basically just made something up, you know, wherever he could to make the torture stop. There had already, there, there were people when they first re received word of this, thought this was not on the level. But there were others who did, and, and as unfortunately was the case in all of the Powell speech prep, the, the loudest voices in the voices in the room, the most forceful, were the ones who carried the day. You're right that, that Tenet, you know, had from the outset been a skeptic relating to the Al Qaeda connection, and in particular, you'll recall that there was this notion that had it proved out to be true would have been really significant that one of the key. 9-11 hijackers Mohammed Atta has supposedly gone to Prague and met with an Iraqi intelligence official in the months leading up to 9-11. Now, if that's a connection that, if it's real, is really, you know, meaningful. But it seemed not to be real and, again, was almost immediately discredited, except by Dick Cheney. You know, and, and Cheney and Scooter <laughs> Libby, they, they really, really believed it and they were battering away at, at um, and Wolfowitz as well. And so, I, you know, I have like these journal entries from a CIA analyst who is constantly having to churn out this stuff. And he and, and uh, you know, he was he was calling, uh, you know, Wolfowitz this obsessive maniac. And, and uh, you know, one analyst at a certain point when asked about, you know, do you have anything new on uh, Atta? You know, the answer was he's he's still dead. And um, uh, but it's but 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 so, you know, in a sense, so, but it is true nonetheless that, I mean, for all of the support that Director Tennant gave to his analysts on that, when it came time to go to the Hill and give a kind of statement relating to any and all connections between Saddam and Al Qaeda. He actually went to his analyst. He said, OK, can I say this? Can I say that there have been contacts over the years? Can I say that the, the, the relationship is evolving over time? Can I say that there has been safe haven given? And uh, in other words, there is tenant trying to feed something, you know, and, and so then while his deputy, John McLaughlin, is on the Hill one day testifying in a classified setting, chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Carl Levin asked him, um, so what's the probability that Saddam would go out and attack us, you know, without us attacking him? And he said, low. And he said, what's the probability that Saddam will retaliate if we do attack him? High. And so immediately Levin got that declassified and Condi's furious and goes to Tenet about it. And Tenet, in effect, does a retraction. I mean, he, he says, well, you know, there's really, no, no, we, we very much take seriously the threat of Saddam. No, the CIA actually believed that even if he had WMD, he was not a threat to America. But that is Tenet crossing a red line in his effort to be helpful. I, I want to use this opportunity to tell my own Atta in yeah, Prague story. I, figured. I was, gonna, I was okay. trying to intervene so you wouldn't discuss. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, <laughs> it's my favorite story from this era, and it actually includes another character from your book, Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, brilliant uh, journalist, who was having a holiday party 
or a party. He objected to the idea uh, that it was a holiday party at his apartment in which uh, Wolfowitz was there, Scooter Libby was there, and lots of journalists. Uh, and I end up talking to Scooter Libby about the Atta in Prague allegations. And we ended up getting in, it was a big crowd, we ended up getting into a 20-minute debate about the subject right into the minutia. Everybody else is completely bored by this and wanders away. But there was Scooter Libby, Cheney's guy, sticking to this story, absolutely believed it when there really was no evidence to support it. Was this because Isakov, you you kind of debunked it in a Newsweek story? Absolutely. Uh, well, I so had the was, FBI, yeah. FBI and CIA on the record saying, "No, we've looked into this, and it just simply is not there. It didn't happen." Let me ask you, Robert, about one more character who obviously was central to all of this, but didn't seem to have the kind of same sort of ideological drive that some of the others did, but maybe was motivated by arrogance, and and that's. Don Rumsfeld. What did you conclude about Rumsfeld in your reporting? Very similar to what you just said. I mean, yeah. Rumsfeld is kind of infuriating character, brilliant, not as brilliant as he thought he was, believed himself to be more brilliant than anyone else, but did not want you know his brilliance to manifest in actual policy recommendations because that would put him out on a limb. He, he more preferred to answer questions with questions of his own, to take apart the reasoning of others. I mean, the classic cases where you know he says to, in, in the Camp David setting of, of four days after 9-11, that, uh, you know, we need to have a plan and that we shouldn't wait around for a coalition. Um, but then when Bush actually pulls everybody around the table, so should we should we go after Saddam? He's the only one who doesn't make a vote one way or another. He's noncommittal always. You're correct, Dan, that I don't think he was quite, certainly conservative, but he did not believe necessarily in um, uh, he, democracy, shimamocracy. I don't think he ever cared about that. You know, he, he always talked about, you know, that we need to take our hands off the bicycle seat, let the Iraqis govern themselves, kind of like, you know, lovable language that I don't think would truck very well today. And, uh, but it's, and, he believed in force projection and and uh, um, but uh, but, you know, I he seemed more preoccupied with a couple of things. For one thing, the transformational notion of the DOD basically doing things differently than the way his predecessors had. So the size of an invasion force, a small size, that is, meant so much to him. And secondly, turf meant a lot to him. And so it's it's a Throughout the book, you see when everyone else is focused on like um, getting things done, he's focused on turf protection. He's you know no no decision is too small for him. And Doug Fife, his undersecretary, said to me on the record, any any decision of any meaningfulness. Rumsfeld wanted to be able to make. And further, he wanted to get there early when, as Fife would say, when when the clay is still soft, when he can mold it. And so, mm -hmm. and you constantly see in his snowflakes and in conversations with others that, that uh, Rumsfeld objecting to process, that, that Condi Rice's national security advisor is incorrectly interposing herself between him, the secretary of, of defense, and the commander in chief in the chain of command. He was obsessed with these things rather than really being helpful to the president, but he totally Totally played Bush. I mean, Bush, I think, you know, was played by by Donald Rumsfeld better than anybody in the administration. Robert, the Iraq war will always be remembered as, you know, the colossal mistake of the Bush White House. Uh, but a lot of prominent Democrats went along. In fact, every Democrat back in 2002 or 2003 who was thinking about running for president voted for the war. John Kerry, Dick Gephardt, Hillary Clinton, John Edwards, and Joe Biden all voted for the war. Explain why and how that happened, and in particular, given that he's the presumptive Democratic nominee, what this tells us about Joe Biden. Sure. Well, so one asterisk, there was one candidate for president, short-lived, who voted against it, and that was Bob Graham, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, his candidacy lasted like a, a minute and a half. Yeah, I had forgotten about that that race. Yeah. But you're right that everyone else did, and factoring into their calculations, Mike, were, number one, that they believed that the numbers would prevail anyway. And so 
you know, would it really cost them that much to, if they were to vote for it? <coughs> Excuse me. Number two, because they had, uh, you know, all, all of them had presidential aspirations, they looked back at um, a former presidential hopeful by the name of Sam Nunn, who voted against the first Gulf War. And the conventional wisdom was the, that cut off at the knees his prospects to run in 1992. Now, Dick Gephardt had also voted against that war, and he withdrew from the 1992 race, seeing um, the, uh, you know, is just seeing the tea leaves as he did. So there are those as well. I also do think that, that um, you know, there was a, I hope among some, and here I, I'll maybe charitably put, put Biden in this category, that tactically voting for this did not necessarily mean voting for war, that it meant instead um, ensuring a, a UN process, including weapons inspections. That's what Biden's people continue to maintain to this day. Of course, I suppose it's in their interest to do so. It is also true that, that look, I mean, if you go back and look at the record, Biden, Hillary Clinton, and all these people were back in the 1990s and all the way up until, you know, the time of the vote, convinced that Saddam had weapons. I mean, there, there are very few of these. So so they figured, look, the guy's dangerous. I mean, war could be bad. You know, it, it, it could be unpredictable. It could, you know, have unforeseen consequences. But at minimum, we'll be taking care of, you know, this rogue dictator who's got all these weapons. They all believe that. And then you've got, and I, I mentioned this in an essay I wrote recently about Biden. I mean, Biden on September the 10th, 2001, referred to Saddam as a certifiable maniac. And this was part of this really, you know, unfortunate thinking on the part of both Democrats and Republicans. A, a certifiable maniac is a guy you can't even talk to. That's a guy there's no point being an ally with. That's a guy who's capable of anything. Saddam was a terrible, brutal man. But it does not mean that he could not be reasoned with. In fact, that he could be reasoned with on the level that he wanted to maintain power. And, uh, and, the, and Rumsfeld was the one person in the administration who floated in Rumsfeldian way as like one of 15 possibilities. Hey, maybe we could reach out to the guy. Maybe we should, you know, again, take it with a grain of salt because this came with like nine other or 15 other ideas of Rumsfeld's. But for everyone else, he wasn't worth talking to. And that was Biden's mindset, too. And I think that was a conventional wisdom that deserved a revisitation that did not occur. So Isakoff and I could go on asking you questions about this forever, I think. But we want to be respectful of your time. I have a couple of more final questions. Um, one is, I don't know how many of the principals uh, you were able to interview. I don't know how much you can talk about that. But I am interested in the extent to which any of them showed kind of remorse or contrition about their role in this uh, historical fiasco. Yeah, I don't mind telling you that, yeah, I wasn't. I was unable to talk to the president, the vice president, and then owing to his current mental state, um, the secretary of defense. Rumsfeld does not, I was told by his people, not able to speak really mm -hmm. with any kind of a, you know, clarity. Everyone else I did speak to. And it's, and as to remorse and contrition, no, <laughs> there was nothing. <laughs> there was nothing ever explicit. There was no one who would say it was a mistake. There was at least one of the, let's say, top eight, who unfortunately I cannot name, who said, you know, I was never a fan of this whole going into Iraq thing, and I was like. Really, dude? You know, it's um, uh, you know, and, and I mean, now, now, you know, and I mean, did you did you tell anyone at the time? And I think you see in Condi Rice's language a a, a recognition of what this has wrought. You, you no longer hear them glibly say, "Well, the world is better off without Saddam," because I'm not sure that you can calculate it that way anymore. And uh, where you could all the way up until. 2007, 2008. So the short answer to your question is um, no, no remorse. Lots of recognition that there were immortal screw ups, but it tends to be a sort of circular firing squad in that regard. So, Robert, what are the lessons for today uh, from this whole experience? And I want to just sort of, uh, you know, add to that question a bit because. You know, I wrote the book with David Korn, Hubris, in 2006, as you noted, which, you know, picked apart the performance of the intelligence community and uh, documented many of the uh, of their errors, which you have now expanded on. And today, and I also wrote a book with Korn a couple of years ago about Russia, in which we largely accepted the intelligence about Russia, and you know, obviously, which when our president does not. And I've had it thrown back from lefties saying, "Why did you uh, go after the intelligence on Iraq, and then yet 
accept what the intelligence community had to say about Russia. And I've got my own answers for that, but I'd be interested to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, sure. So there's, I mean, the short answer relating to that very last part, Mike, is that the intelligence community has learned from Iraq, you know, and and that's not to say that the intel is infallible. It's not. And there there continued to be arguments in the Obama administration, and there were some legitimate arguments in the Trump administration relating to specific intel. But they have learned to their their methodologies. They have now come to examine a great deal more that like, I mean, when you look at the landscape of like, who got fired over Iraq, the answer, the question answers itself, right? I mean, you know, the major members of the media are still out there. I guess Judy Miller is the one casually, but it, but uh, so I, I, I think that the way to square the circle relating to intelligence is is that, I mean, if anybody has undergone self-inspection and, and, and a subsequent evolution in thinking, it's the IC. Now, as to the, to the question of lessons learned, I, I suppose there's two. One of them is that um, allies matter. You know, and and they didn't matter to us too much. We we were basically gone with the minimum. You know, we we would have gone it alone maybe with um, had Blair not been a participant, but Blair being a participant was a big deal. Nonetheless, like you know, there's the president listening to King Abdul. I mean, I have a practically I have the recreation of the scene and. In August of 2002, and Abdul is arguing with him about this, and he's just saying, "Look, you know, Saddam's a bad dude. History has called us. We don't want you know people to look back 30 years and say the king and I, you know, were too too timid to to weigh in." But I mean, he he simply wouldn't listen to his allies, and that's that Rumsfeldian thinking of well, the mission or um, the mission should determine the coalition, not the coalition determine the mission. But that's kind of crazy thinking. But the other thing I would say is that experience matters, but only to a point, and and it you know. It's I mean, so to the Biden question, I do think that and, and hope that candidate Joe Biden has learned now that if the president, if President George W. Bush says, hey, Joe, if you give me this vote, I promise I'm not I'm, you know, I'm probably not going to go to war. You know, don't don't buy it. Don't, you know, maybe listen to other people, you know, that maybe be more of a skeptic, maybe bring people from the outside, maybe have people. I mean, Biden had on his payroll a guy who said these aluminum tubes are not for what you think they are. He should have listened to him. Peter Zimmerman, right? Yes, Zimmerman, right. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you know, it's a and and uh, so I mean, if um if experience really means an earnest search for the truth, then then I'm all for experience. But um, but but basically, truth was the casualty of Iraq, and truth is the casualty today. And whoever gets us out from under this is going to be someone who, and this is going to be a real heavy lift, will be able to convince the American public that the truth, including the uncomfortable truth, is what matters. I mean, what separates us from Italy vis-a-vis the coronavirus is they, like, trusted the science. They also have a, you know, um, a shared sense of sacrifice, the Italians do, or we apparently do not, or at least a big segment of, of the American public. But they just like, okay, if the scientists say this is what we're supposed to do, we're sociable people, but we'll do it. And we didn't. Well, on that note, Robert, I want to thank you for joining us. It's a great book. You have really advanced the ball on one of the uh, great uh, you know, moments, not great moments, but one of the infamous moments of uh, American history. Uh, the book is To Start a War, How the Bush Administration Took America into Iraq. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, guys. It was a pleasure to talk to you all. Thanks to journalist and author Robert Draper for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.